2: Welcome to the New York Institute for the Humanities podcast. I'm Robert Boynton. In this episode from the Institute's vault, we have an excerpt from a two-day symposium, Hannah Arendt Right Now, which explored the philosopher's impact on the 21st century. The 2006 event was held on the 100th anniversary of Arendt's birth. The focus of this episode is Arendt's 1963 book, Eichmann in Jerusalem. The session begins with historian Anthony Grafton, whose father, a journalist, once wrote about Arendt. The second speaker is Dr. Ronnie Braumann, the co-director of The Specialist, Portrait of a Modern Criminal, a documentary about the trial of Adolf Eichmann. The third speaker is Marguerite von Trotta, the German director whose 2012 film about Hannah Arendt focuses on the Eichmann trial. And the session concludes with Pamela Katz, who wrote the screenplay for the Arendt movie.
1: This is the part of our commemoration where we deal more explicitly with Eichmann in Jerusalem. We'll begin with Anthony Grafton from Princeton. Then we're going to show scenes from Ronnie Brauman's film The Specialist, which is actually scenes from the Eichmann trial. He'll introduce that. Margaret von Trotta was not able to come here, but we were able to film a 15-minute interview with her, which we will show right after that. So I'm not going to introduce Anthony Grafton except to say that he's really cool, and here he is. Well, what we've seen today, it seems to
2: me, is that Hannah Arendt never quite managed to die. She's still incredibly alive. And in a way, this wonderful interview is a kind of metaphor for the way that she's still more alive than most of the interlocutors with whom we spend our days. It's amazing to see her and hear of her as the interlocutor for the extraordinary series of speakers we heard today. To hear the way in which she gives powerful tools for thinking to people whose own minds are so extraordinarily powerful. How in this very dark time we live in, she still gives us some kind of torch Faint, flickering, but light, with which we can look a little bit around. It's an extraordinary achievement, and the Eichmann book is clearly an important part of that achievement. Here is a work written as reportage almost 50 years ago, which is still indispensable, not just indispensable in... Courses on the Holocaust, and I think she'd have deplored most courses on the Holocaust, which she would have thought have lent themselves to the kind of false emotionalizing that she was just talking about. But book that is indispensable for any historian or political scientist who tries to understand the fate of the European Jews in the 1930s or 1940s. The recent debate between Daniel Jonah Goldhagen and Christopher Browning turned in the end on Arendt and Arendt's interpretation of Eichmann. It's just extraordinary that after half a century of close empirical work in which every aspect of the Holocaust has been studied, her perspective is still absolutely central, unavoidable. You can't get away from it. And it's as essential as well for people dealing with the all too many similar events that have taken place in the second part of that kidney stone of a century, the 20th. I think here, for example, of Carolyn Elkins and her remarkable book on the British and the Mau Mau in Kenya after World War II, another book totally alien from Arendt in its geography and in its story, but one in which she's omnipresent. It's a book that it is important to read, and this, I think, it's my role as a historian to emphasize in an occasion like this, with critical judgment for a critical judgment was what she insisted on bringing to every event, every person, and every text in the course of that extraordinary life. And it's a particular kind of book. It's a sort of moral and political reflection carried on through narrative and commentary. This is not something new with Arendt. Um, one could think of Tacitus and a few other historians who have managed to do something similar. In the world of political science, I think of de Tocqueville, who in in many ways also was someone who, by telling a story or by describing a social world, could draw profound moral and political conclusions. And the use of those names, I hope, suggests something of my estimate of Arendt's place in the canon of Western thinkers. It's also, in genre, something a little different. It's a deep reportage which draws moral and political conclusions. And that's a genre that flourished in various ways after the Second World War, often, though not always, at The New Yorker, which sponsored her trip to Jerusalem. It is a book which has... Many characteristics in common with Rebecca West's meaning of treason, um, a now mostly forgotten but extraordinary study of the World War II treason trials extended a year after the Eichmann book came out into the new meaning of treason with a further look at communists who had been condemned in the West. Something perhaps in common, in intent, though not at all in execution with Hersey's report on Hiroshima. To that extent, it is important to remember that it was a work of occasion. It was written without the kind of open timeline of some of her larger and more, not more ambitious, there's no more ambitious book than this, but her larger and more theoretical works with which we've mostly been concerned. So as a historian, what can I add to the discussion of this book? Very little by way of textual analysis. Everybody here knows, I see from the color of the hair, like mine, of those who still have hair, that many of you, like me, remember the appearance of the original articles in the New Yorker, the original book, Herbert Musumano's review in the New York Times, the town hall debate, all those other things. Everybody knows the principal points to which objections were raised and besides small points and slips. Really, it was the discussion of the Jewish councils and the banality of evil. And as Arendt herself, we just heard her saying, said, these really are by no means anything like a complete or deep account of the work. So what can I say? Well, I can tell you a little story. And I think it's an important story to tell you because it emphasizes that Arendt like those people about whom she wrote those wonderful profiles in Men in Dark Times, was human. And on occasions like this, that's a fact we can easily lose from view. So let me read you a text. It comes from the period when Arendt was most under fire for the Eichmann book. It's a letter she wrote to Karl Jaspers. One of the big illustrated magazines here, Look, wanted to do a report on this whole business at the end of July. They suggested a well-known non-Jewish reporter. My publisher, as well as the New Yorker, thought I should agree to it, answering written questions under certain conditions. They thought the story would be handled in a thoroughly fair way. But when Look came to do the story, they assigned another reporter to it, a Jew who interviewed only people who had already spoken out against me. He sent me a questionnaire full of loaded questions. I answered the questions, but then my publisher in The New Yorker thought it would be better not to cooperate. There is no question in my mind that the Jewish organizations got wind of Look's plans and intervened. The Jewish journalist was my father, Samuel Grafton. (laughs) (laughs) And I can tell you that there is not a word of truth in this account. And I say this not simply because I was actually at the dinner table while he was writing those questions and sending them to Arendt and getting her magnificent answers. And I urge you to read these. They're available on the Arendt website of the Library of Congress. And they'll be published, I think, in full for the first time this spring. All I want to say is that I'm a historian. I don't have a view on the Holocaust. But I was interested by this account of my father. It didn't square with my memory. So I went through his files, and I found, as far as the files went, he was the only journalist who was assigned to the story. Among the people he spoke to were spokesmen of Jewish organizations and prominent Jews who were very critical of the book, but also William Sean, who was a friend of his, Dwight MacDonald, who was a friendly acquaintance, Jason Epstein, George Green, a whole bunch of the people who were most prominent in the defense of Arendt. And I believe Arendt must have been told that because phones were ringing all over the city, letters were passing, and I don't believe that her attention was never called to the fact that he was interviewing people on both sides and good journalist that he was, a great figure on the New York Post when the Post was a newspaper in the 30s and 40s, he had actually sent every quotation he wanted to use to the person from whom he took it for verification and accepted their changes. It's not a terrible story. She was under tremendous pressure. Um, Country mouse from New Jersey, like me, can really barely comprehend. This was, I think it's fair to say, the first media shitstorm of a kind that has become extremely familiar in more recent years when a book, and it's never a book as powerful or important as Eichmann in Jerusalem, stirs up a storm. And the storm then comes to be in this realm of meta we live in, not about the content of the book, but about the manner of the book, or the style of the book, or the style in which the book is defended. This was something unfamiliar at the time. Now my stomach starts hurting every time one of these things begins. It's like sit-ins in the 60s. You just know when it's going to start, and you know how it's all going to play itself out. (laughs) But then it was something new, and it's entirely forgivable that one would be upset that one's judgment would not be as solid and accurate and precise as it would be in other times. But I think it's an important story nonetheless. For me, Arendt was almost always right in the questions in which I've studied her intervention and in the issues in which she expressed herself as a philosopher. Her profiles, and as a historian, I'm probably best equipped to appreciate them, are extraordinary, among the greatest essays of their kind ever written. But she was human. She made mistakes. And this seems to me to raise an interesting question about the specialist and to suggest interesting duties for those who bring her back to life in cinematic form. The specialist gives an Archimedean point for thinking about and thinking against Eichmann in Jerusalem, or thinking with it, on the basis of independent observation. And this is the point where I think her writing as a reporter is so central. In a very different media world than the one we live in now, in one where you didn't have cable nitwits telling you every five minutes what was happening in Jerusalem, in which one learned about the world from print Arendt's account of Eichmann, Arendt's account of the prosecutor and the prosecution, had an extraordinary, I think really unchallengeable power and were rarely questioned even by those who were made most furious by, for example, the brief section on the Jewish councils. But no reporter, and I'm a reporter's son, I know about this, no reporter is ever perfect, no reporter catches every tone, No reporter can go beyond that matrix of immediacy in which he or she works. So it's really extraordinary to have this amazing film, I'm sure some of you have seen it before, as another way to think those events on which she put so extraordinarily powerful a stamp. The challenge for drama and for any kind of bringing of her back to life, a challenge met extraordinarily by Elizabeth Jungbrühl in what I think is one of the very greatest biographies written in modern times, the rare biography that's up to a great subject, usually they just reduce them, is how to convey the greatness and the humanity and the occasional fallibility. Because without those, the greatness becomes hagiography the admiration becomes something that we pay like worship to a divine figure rather than the considered response we give to someone whom we owe it for she is still alive she is still our interlocutor she lives with me every day not just because i made her acquaintance right after my bar mitzvah when my father did but because her work has been so meaningful to me as it is so meaningful to everyone in this room and The only way to do justice to that work is to judge it. And I think the means we'll look at tonight will help us judge. Thank you.
1: I love the historical category of the media shitstorm. I refer to it as as the thumbsuck frenzy is the other way of thinking about it. So, Ronnie, maybe you could come up. We're going to show just a little bit of the specialist, but maybe Ronnie can describe what it is exactly. We're going to look at it. This is Ronnie Brown.
3: (laughs) Thank you. Well, I will talk tomorrow morning of how I came to read uh, eichmann in jerusalem and then to make uh, this film in fact i'm the author i'm not the filmmaker uh, the israeli filmmaker is the one who made the film but i wrote it this film was entirely made with the the footage which was shot (laughs) at the time of the trial by leo horowitz leo horowitz filmed about 500 hours and we could get hold of uh, 350 hours probably. I calculated that the total footage amounted to 500 hours and my estimation, my small, the, the small investigation I made pushes me to think that uh, 150 hours were lost. Those hours concern mainly, treat mainly of the testimonies. They are the, the parts who include the, the witnesses, the survivors. But the part which was entirely preserved is the one where Eichmann uh, speaks. And for us, this was a great luck because we wanted to focus on Eichmann because this was the point of view that Arendt adopted. And we wanted to look like beyond her shoulder at the accused in his uh, glass booths. When the film came out, it raised also quite a strong controversy, uh, at least in France, and what is striking is that this controversy deals exactly with the themes which appeared at the time of the publication of Eichmann in Jerusalem. Namely, the veracity of Eichmann words and the, the issue of the Jewish councils. I'd like to say a few words about the issue of the Jewish councils. Because what I realized when I worked on the proceedings of the trial, and of course when I watched the entirety of the footage, What I realized is that one-third of the witnesses were Jewish councils, one-third. 33 out of a bit more than 100. And that, Aren didn't bother to mention it in her uh, book. I don't know why, because that would have sort of (coughs) simplified and smoothened her case. She didn't try to focus on the Jewish council. The trial focused on the Jewish council. Just to give you an idea, more than 500 persons showed up When the appeal to witnesses was launched by Prosecutor Hausner, he decided to keep only, so to speak, a hundred. Out of these hundred witnesses, 33 were former Jewish council at various levels of responsibility from a basic secretary to a prominent leader of Jewish council like in Budapest or, or Amsterdam. And I think that this is no coincidence, of course. This trial responded to a number of political goals, though it was, as Arendt shows it, a very uh, well-organized judgment, chaired by Judge Lando, whom Arendt admires a lot, and who conducted the trial in a very fair way. There were like 200 cases of judgment of former Jewish council members in Israel at the time of the Eichmann trial. After the trial, all these cases were dropped. There was absolutely no more judgment of a former Jewish council. And my interpretation of this is that one of the secondary issues, because there were more important ones at stake, was to establish a clear line between executioners and victims and to erase this so-called grey zone, which was analyzed by Primo Levi and which is really uh, also described in Arendt's book. This was not relevant anymore. Israel had to become the nation of the fighters and the victims, but not of the traitors, not of any victim who could bear some kind of uh, guilt or could raise any kind of problem. And I think it's a very uh, interesting uh, issue. Maybe we can discuss it a bit later on. I'll finish with this. The other problem which was raised after the release of the film was about our own intervention inside the image. I'll give you an explanation on it. As I said, we used archive footage. This footage was in a very bad state. I won't elaborate on the difficulties we had to get hold of this footage, which was completely abandoned, haphazardly stored in the toilets of the uh, uh, Hebrew University of Jerusalem. This shouldn't be seen as a metaphor. Uh, the toilets were the only wet and fresh place in the uh, university, there was no aircon at, at the time, but people had lost memory of the place where those tapes had been stored. So they were totally abandoned and absolutely not usable. There were only like 70 tapes which could be used by well filmmakers, documentary makers, journalists, and only the so-called sensational sequences of the trial had been kept, but uh, Eichmann was not there. Eichmann was there only to say, well, I just obeyed orders, I'm not guilty, and that was it. I mean, the sort of (coughs) canonic responses he gave to the court. But nobody could ever imagine that he'd spoken such a long time. He spoke during weeks and weeks, but uh, this memory had been uh, lost. So the images were in a very bad condition. So firstly, we had to restore them. That took us a lot of money, a lot of time. So these are original footage but not really original footage because we sort of reshot everything we sort of refilmed everything but there is something more we created a few new images because we wanted to organize a kind of dialogue between Eichmann and the witnesses this dialogue never took place and in fact you don't really see a dialogue but there is a kind of cross cutting yeah, which enabled us to organize a kind of virtual dialogue between Eichmann and the witnesses. And I mean by virtual dialogue the fact that Eichmann had to respond to the judges on the facts which were evoked by the witnesses. And that never happened uh, during the trial because the the traditional Anglo-Saxon law whereby the, the witnesses speak and then during the cross interrogation under oath the accused, who is a witness of his own trial, speaks. So there was absolutely never any interaction between the witnesses and the the accused. And we wanted to organize this uh, interaction to sort of dramatize. I mean, it's a show, it's a film. We wanted to make it as interesting, as uh, intriguing as possible. And to do so, we intervened into the images in order to stick some segments together and to have a sort of continuity between Eichmann And the witnesses. And that was by some uh, critics a a mistake or even a moral fault because of course that blurs the status of the archives. When we watch this movie are we are we watching the original documents of the trial or are we watching something which has been manipulated, cut, uh, remounted, re-edited by the filmmakers. For me it was not an ethical problem at all because anyway uh, making a film is about just handling scissors and cutting and editing its human creation. But obviously it was addressed as a very deep and important moral issue by some of our critics. So that was maybe a more discreet part of the attacks we had to face, but it was quite strong for some of the uh, most prominent film critics, like in Le Cahier du Cinema and other journals and magazines of, of this sort.
1: Truly an amazing thing. I really do urge you to, to get it if you haven't seen it. The general observation as he comes off, I mean, this is without reference to her categories, he comes off as a really wonderful bureaucrat. Except for what he's talking about, he's just very punctilious about how he goes about his work and if you just don't pay attention to what's being talked about, it's quite an amazing performance. So we, we're now gonna gradually turn to Margaret von Trotte's take on this material and, and Elizabeth can introduce that subject for us.
4: We had hoped to have uh, Margarita Vontrate with us this evening, and then at the last uh, moment, she could not be there. So uh, at first, I accepted this news, but then, of course, Ren Wessler never accepts a situation. He has a much more activist attitude, and knowing that I was going to Paris for another of the Hannah Arendt centenaries, we decided that we would interview Margarita in Paris, where she lives. This evening is it has many themes to it about Eichmann, but it also, of course, has a theme which will unfold about presenting people on film and uh, what you can know from seeing them on film and uh, as opposed to in person and where you can talk with them and so forth. So this is uh, Margarita von Trotte who has the concept and the beginnings of a script for a film about Hannah Arendt, and she suggested, and I thought it an excellent suggestion, that... We begin our interview by looking at some footage from her biography film of Rosa Luxemburg. And then Margarita takes off after that to talk about the film that she wants to make about Hannah Arendt, which will not be exactly a a biopic, but she'll tell you a bit about what what she wants it to be. When I started to work
0: on Rosa Luxemburg, make the film Rosa Luxemburg, I always thought that she was the most important And thinker of the century. Mm -hmm. And uh, only afterwards, I I considered now that perhaps nowadays, now and is more important because for what we lived up in the century and what we know now about totalitarianism, she foresaw it and she described it. But on the other hand, I think uh, because you know, when we were in, uh, I did Rosa Luxemburg in 85, so we were still a little bit in the the Mm -hmm. last moments of 68 and the the rebellion, and we were still contaminated a little bit by the idea that uh, democratic socialism could be an option. Mm -hmm. And so, for so many leftist people in Germany, Anna Arendt was a little bit put away because yeah. she was just in front of us. She was so uh, more prophetic back mm. then that we were you know, uh, perhaps too young and too in, unexperienced you know, at all. And mm. So only after the fall of the war, in a way. And I did then The Promise, another film, yeah. that was a film about the East and West Germany. And I had to go to, to East Germany and make ready document, um, documentation about what happened there. And, and so I really understood what communism was, mm-hmm. the, real, the real communism. Mm-hmm. And I think when Rosa Luxemburg would have um, not been killed by the Freikorps and by the righteous people in, uh, in, in 1919, and she would have. Been them, all by Stalin, or by the Nazis. So going on, uh, she would have understood what totalitarianism is. And I think she, she would have gone in the same direction perhaps. You could imagine, because she was brilliant enough and free, a free thinker enough, and open enough to understand. So for me, Hannah Arendt is a little bit like a successor no, from mm. the Luxembourg, mm. and I was so touched when I read in your book that uh, when a student uh, said to her, "You are me, like from the that Hannah Arendt was was really proud about that. and that's yeah. that was touching for me because
4: <laughs> <laughs> you you <laughs> yeah. had got the connection. Yes. yes. Yeah. No, and also mm. you know,
0: Rosa would have been as a Jewish woman would have been killed in Addis mm. and Hannah Arendt could have you have not gone away to France and then has a chance to flee from girls and to go to, to America there. So there are a lot of connections. And since I'm always doing films about women, mm. and uh, it's in a way my destiny. And I think uh, Hannah Arendt is really so worthwhile, mm. so worthwhile very difficult to yeah. get into her character, to, yeah. to see her. Like for me it was a Ruxmok, I, I had to, to work on her for two two years. I had mean, every letter I mean, it's a long way to, to, to get up to her. And I think Hannah Arendt is
4: even longer. Because but you originally were thinking of making a film of Hannah Arendt's entire life and then you decided to focus on the Eichmann.
0: Why was that? When I thought I about the a film and I asked Pam Katz to help me write the, with, the script because she was already my collaborator for Rosenstanz. We worked very well together and she was enthusiastic and um, so we started. And we we thought it might be a bio, normal biopic. And we, we started to write the script and with all, you know, all these Paris years and, the, and and then coming to America and the first difficulties in, in New York and so on. It became, yeah, a real story and then, and then, and then like a real biography. And in a way, we felt that we had not enough time because the film can be more than... Two hours and two hours and yeah. three hours. And you can't go really into the depths of a period, of a character, of a life in this short time. And mainly in the life of Anna Hart, who is so rich. Such so a life, rich. And, yes. so, yeah, and so we, we, we uh, changed totally our concept, uh, having the idea to only just describe the Eichmann. Yes. So the trial, the Eichmann trial, writing on the, the first articles of the book. And then the controversy, because it's like to condense mm. her life and her character, like in a in a black hole. Yes, you know? focus her it. Intelligence, yeah, intelligence, yeah. her, also her sharpness, her brilliance, mm. and her vulnerability. So you mm. have the woman and 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 her, and I think till today it's a book which is the most known, and it's still uh, not. The most known, but not the most understood. And and for me, as a German, I'm of the generation who was who still born in, in, the, in the war and in the dark times.